baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up, and your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. Welcome to KCBS In-Depth, a discussion of one of the topics making news this week. This is KCBS In-Depth. And welcome to In-Depth. I'm Doug Sovereign, and this week our guest is Amanda Stern, author of the new book, Little Panic, Dispatches from an Anxious Life. Amanda Stern is the author of the novel, The Long Haul, as well as a dozen children's books. This, though, is a memoir, one that's winning rave reviews. It is called, again, Little Panic, Dispatches from an Anxious Life. Can you begin by just giving us sort of a nutshell description of what this book is all about? So the book is about growing up with an undiagnosed panic disorder in Aton Pate's era, Greenwich Village. Um, Aton Pates was a little boy who went missing in 1979 and um, sort of traumatized all the kids and the parents in the neighborhood. And it really affected me in my life and it helped shape the person I became. And as a kid growing up in New York, I was traumatized by Aton Pates and I was older than you. So I was over the fear of being kidnapped at that time. But for you, being the age you were, I mean, what was that like day to day thinking this could happen to me? Well, it was, I think, extra difficult for me because I did have an undiagnosed panic disorder. It went undiagnosed until I was 25. So I already had a fear, like a tremendous fear of uncertainty and the unknown. And my anxiety organized itself around my mom and separating from her. And I couldn't uh, bear to part with her without um, believing that something would happen to her, uh, that she would die or disappear, or that I would die or disappear. So when someone actually disappeared, and they were my age, and I had been told all this time, nothing's going to happen to you, nothing's going to happen to you, don't worry, don't worry, it sort of validated my fears that the world was a place that I couldn't trust, and um, all the adults had told me otherwise. So this is a memoir of New York in the 70s and 80s and your own anxiety and panic in life and then bringing it full circle to how you are as an adult, right? Yeah. I mean, what I wanted to do was to write an autobiography of an emotion and to chart the life cycle of anxiety as it as it traveled through me from infancy until now. So it does follow my life as a child and then the choices that I made as an adult and the way that it influenced the person that I became. It's a fascinating idea to write an autobiography of an emotion, and especially when you still feel that emotion. Yeah. Uh, How did you approach that as a writer, um, writing this and dealing with what it brings up when you're you're trying to put it on the page? Well, you know, it's interesting because anxiety got in my way of writing for so long, and it was the thing that I had to wrestle with and... and, um, wrestled down in order to actually base the page and write something. So in a way, it was kind of freeing to be able to use the anxiety as the reason to write. And um, I didn't have to get it out of my way. In fact, I had to sink into it. And that was that was scary because I did have to re-traumatize myself in order to write about these emotions that I have felt my whole life, but that changed shape from childhood to now. Um, So I had to reimagine all the feelings in my body 
that I had as a child in order to write about them. And it was probably one of the hardest things I've, I've ever had to do as a human being and as a writer. And I've gone through some pretty tough stuff. And it was, it was really trying, but ultimately really worth it because now I feel equipped to write the books that I want to write. And I don't feel afraid to talk about my anxiety in the same ways that I did before I wrote this book. A lot of people, I mean, whatever their problem is, whether it's anxiety or a fear of something specific or whatever their issue may be, they try to avoid it and they use all kinds of avoidance techniques. Um, in your case, you had to wallow in it and confront yeah. it. And how has that made a difference in terms of, as you say, getting over it, getting past it, but in getting to move on with your life and, and be the person you want to be? Well, avoiding your anxiety, I learned, makes your world so much smaller. There was a, I wasn't diagnosed until I was 25. And around that time, I honestly can't remember if it was before I was diagnosed or after, but I, I realized that I wanted a bigger life than my anxiety was allowing me. And I could decide whether to let my anxiety choose me and shrink my life and avoid everything that scared me or I could do the thing that felt less hard, harder than that, because that is hard to like be beholden to your fear is, is really a terrible thing to experience. And I thought I could either be beholden to my fear or I could face it and try and move through this horrific hold it has over me in all these different areas and layers of my life and actually live, like live the best possible way a person with these problems can live. I'm not anxiety free, but uh, my life isn't shrunken because of it. And I've, I've managed to um, make my life bigger in, because I've faced the anxiety. So when you were finally diagnosed at 25, and now we won't, you're, you're in your 40s, we won't say any more than that. Um, <laughs> was it a matter of medication and therapy? And how did you then manage what you realized was now your your debilitating problem well i was i was diagnosed um because i couldn't leave my house for three weeks and um when something goes undiagnosed and untreated for that long it um sort of branches out and spirals into all these different disorders so by the time i was 25 i had like you know a party of different disorders floating around in me and um so uh, one of the things that I was really suffering from was agoraphobia, and I I couldn't leave my house and I couldn't live with the people in my house. I had roommate, I had a roommate and my boyfriend, and I just felt really trapped and and I became um, suicidal. And I finally called my mom and I said I'm afraid for myself, and she sent me to her therapist and he asked me bunch of questions and I answered them and he within under three minutes said this is so obvious to me you know you have a panic disorder and it was like a new movie you know it was like the reels changed and I was given the opportunity to live life knowing what was wrong with me and so I did go on medication but I did that sort of foolish thing that 20 somethings do which is to think you know oh I feel great medication is so helpful. I don't I don't need anything more. So I didn't really face my anxiety and what life living. I didn't face the life I lived not knowing what was wrong with me until I was in my 30s. And 
I spent a lot of my life being misdiagnosed and sent down all these different educational paths. And I was given a tremendous amount of IQ tests and labeled as learning disabled. And so I had to sort of relearn the truth about myself. And I was only able to do that once I was on medication and in talk therapy. And that was in your mid-20s. So now, you know, 20 years later, how are you able to sustain? Is it a matter of, you know, you're still on medication, you adjust them, and you've gone through, obviously, you've had a whole career since then, you've done a lot of writing. Uh, How have you evolved in, you know, the 20 years since? Well, it actually hasn't been 20 years. It's been, I, I probably didn't start to get serious about my own mental health until I was about 35. So it's only been four years. No, I'm kidding. Um, But um, so it's been, you know, 10-ish years. If you think about it, I I didn't get to live the life being the person I really am until I was 25. So in some ways, I'm actually, I don't really do math, but I'm 25 or, you know, whatever it is. I work really hard on uh, not being ruled by my fear. I work really hard on it, and I'm in therapy still. I don't go as often as I used to, but I go, and I'm still on medication. And I, you know, I want I want to sit here and say I meditate every single day. I go to the gym. I have a yoga practice. None of that is true. However, I do think every day I should meditate. I should go to the gym, and having when I do follow through and do those things, I do feel a lot better. But I also do read a ton of books. I read a ton of books. They calm me down and they soothe me. And I read a lot about anxiety. I read a lot about intelligence. I read a lot about childhood anxiety. I read a lot of parenting books, which I don't know that a lot of other people without children do, but I highly recommend it. It is phenomenally rewarding. And it teaches you what went wrong and what you know what you could have benefited from. And then you can kind of just give it to yourself. That's fascinating. So, yeah, you don't have kids, you're unmarried, but you read parenting books to see what, if only your parents had read these books when you were a kid and, yeah. okay, I can do this for myself. That, that that works? It does work. I mean, it's not the only thing, but it's a part of it. It's an aspect of it. If you are someone who feels things really deeply, understands the like why you are the way you are, where it went wrong, there are correctives that that you can make or even just ways to understand what you could have, what could have helped. And now knowing what I know, when I read from my book and there are parents in the audience and they say, how do I help my kid? I can actually give them, like I can give them ideas, not because I have kids, but because I've read enough about it. That's fascinating. You know, books like this can be self-indulgent and solipsistic and people walling, but this is not. I mean, it's brave and it's honest, but it moves. It's like a page turner. How big a challenge was it to write a book like this about your own personal stuff and years of it and have it come out compelling and not self-indulgent and who needs to read about this person's problems. I mean, <laughs> that's, that's a hard thing to do. Well, I'm, I'm glad I succeeded. Um, I guess I guess because the point of it was to write a book about emotion, I, I didn't care so much about writing a book about me. Me without anxiety disorder is not interesting. So I think that that's sort of part of it is I was more interested in this disorder that 
I happened to to possess. So I kept the focus on the emotion and how it debilitated me and how socially and culturally we feed anxiety. We create it, we impart it, we pass it along, and uh, we make it worse or we make it better. And I guess I was interested in other messages that I wanted to send and things I wanted to talk about that were outside of me, but just more about emotions and experiences. But, you know, don't get me wrong. I definitely, while I was writing it, I had no, I I didn't know. I had to give it to people and say, like, this seems so boring to me. You know, I really, should I just, like, make a little vanity press and give this to family members for Jewish Christmas? Um, The answer was was no, but it was a long pause, (laughs) you know, while people read it. And I was like, oh, my God. So I didn't do anything on purpose to make it one way or another. I just really stayed true to my intention. You're listening to KCBS In-Depth. I'm Doug Sovereign with our guest, Amanda Stern. She's the author of Little Panic, Dispatches from an Anxious Life. What would you tell people uh, who maybe are listening and suffer from anxiety, panic attacks or something related that they can, other than reading parenting books, what what (laughs) they can learn from this and, and that'll help them cope with what's crippling them in life? I don't know if I could have answered that before the book was published, but since the book has been published, I've gotten the most incredible letters from people that are, they're just so moving and meaningful to me. And the the sort of refrain over and over is that people have said that, that the book helps them to feel known and seen and validated and that, you know, anxiety is invisible and no one can see what's happening inside of you. And we develop these personas and we push people away with, with our personas, even if we're being funny or, you know. So I think that the, what the book manages to do just because it's articulated from inside of an emotion, it's, in, it's from inside my own experience. So it's like in my brain. I feel like I literally opened up my brain and I'm like, everyone have a look. Isn't it gross? Isn't it messy? And that other people are able to feel validated and seen because they feel that way too. So that's the overall um, message that people have been sending me. I, I will say that a couple of people have gotten really anxious when they've read the book themselves. And what I say to them is don't read it. And Buy it, please, but don't read it. Buy it. Buy 11 <laughs> copies. Buy a copy for each finger. But wait, just wait. You know, I think that that will change as you get more comfortable with your own anxiety and as your anxiety isn't something that you're afraid. If you get less afraid of your anxiety, then you won't be as afraid to read about anxiety. But I think that overall people have have reported that they feel seen and heard and recognized in ways that they hadn't before. And it's just because I'm exposing myself in this really vulnerable way. We live in a very anxious time when people are uh, feeling all kinds of anxieties about the world around them, uh, politically and otherwise. Uh, Anxiety, I mean, in your case, it came from within, but it also was stimulated by something without, this abduction of a child Mm -hmm. when you were a child, which was confirming your worst fears. Um, How is this relevant, do you think, now in a time of global anxiety that people, people who weren't anxious before feel anxious, and people who were even more anxious. Well, I think that it gives people a little bit more of a language to identify the emotions that they're feeling. Um, 
you know, it in the in the book, it's not just the Aton Pate's disappearance that sort of offsets these um, panicked moments in my life, but also other things that happened in the world and in my community. You know, the eleven uh, hour disappearance of a little girl named Marcy Klein, who was Calvin Klein's daughter. Um, the things that happen on the news that as a child you're not shielded from and as a child you take in the world in a totally different way and you take in the news in a in a very concrete literal way and it's terrifying um so i think that it you know i think in some ways the book does allow for some more self-knowledge about how a person feels about the things that are happening around them and in the world. Um, and also, you know, I do I, I do talk a lot about um, fear of separation, fear of being separated from your parent, fear of being separated from your child. And, um, you know, and I've never been separated from my parent ever, but anyone who's suffered from any sort of anxiety can over-identify with what's happening now, either with the you know, families being separated or just over identify with just sort of the insanely corrupt, um, like destabilizing energy in in the world. Um, well, you you haven't been separate from your parent, but your parents divorced when you were very young. Yes. And so you were separate from one parent or another at most of your time. Right. And I mean, that has a deep effect on a child. It does. It has a, it does have a deep effect. I mean, you know, essentially, um, when I was an infant, my, um, my parents separated. My mom also was, um, briefly taken away, uh, hospitalized for, uh, potassium deficiency. And, um, and I, um, yeah, I was without both of my parents. And, for a very brief period of time. I mean, it could have it could have been a day or two days. I don't know, but but that's a kid's entire world. And when that world disappears, you know, that's a true trauma that um, does something. I you know, I'm not a scientist, but it does something neurologically, neurobiologically, and it alters the chemistry. It alters the brain. It alters the person and the personality. That was just a day or two days. And, you know, and that was just a divorce. So the fact that something as intense as a panic disorder can arise from something as simple as a divorce really makes you look at what's going on in the world with uh, an alarm that is um, un uncontainable in a way. It feels uncontainable. Yeah, there's no doubt that, I mean, I can trace many of the aspects of my own personality to my parents getting a divorce when I was a little kid. I mean, that has a, a profound and lasting effect on who you become. Yeah. Um, so when something like, happens like the separation of thousands of kids from their parents at the border, given your history, do you, is that a trigger for you? Or is it something that makes you more empathetic and want to be involved and take action or, or both? It's both. I um, it, you know, I really don't like the word triggering. But when Donald Trump um, was basically stalking Hillary during one of the debates um, and the Handmaid's Tale was playing at the same time, I had this feeling in my body that I couldn't describe until I realized I was being triggered. And then I thought, 
oh, this is the best word ever. It so completely clarifies what I'm feeling. And that is what I felt when um, the, the news of the children being separated from their parents, it, it, I felt it from uh, like the infant in me. You know, I feel it with an emotion that's not adult. And I think that that's in a way what triggering means. You experience it from inside the trauma of whatever you experienced. And so I, I, I have been a little paralyzed. Um, I've gone to marches. I've, I've done as much as I can do. But there, there have been points where I'm, you know, I can't go much further without having an actual panic attack. It's so, it's just too upsetting for me, and and that feels really privileged and awful because nothing is happening to me, you know, and nothing as horrific has happened to me, and I'm yet rendered slightly incapable of doing anything because I'm so, you know, overly identified with these children and these parents. So then, in that case, do you just have to withdraw and pull away from it? I, I do withdraw in some ways, and then I'm active in the ways that I can be, like on Twitter and social media, and I will write about it. I'll point people to phone numbers. I, I've, I've, made as, I've tried to make phone calls, and I, I can't. I can't. I get um, – and one time I just started weeping, and I had to hang up. And it was so embarrassing and humiliating, but it's just – it's how I'm wired. And so I will be active in ways that that um, sort of allow other people to reach out and, and do the things that I'm not fully able to follow through on. So as a writer, I know that we, we all bring stuff from our lives and from our childhood and whatever it is we're working through into our work. And in your case, you've written a lot of young adult fiction and you've written fiction uh, for for big people, <laughs> and uh, you started to try to use some of this as a novel until you saw, realized this has to be a memoir. So once it became a memoir, and now that it's out of the way, so to speak, how liberating is that as a writer to now be like, okay, I worked this through, I got this on the page, I can move on. How important is that to do as a creative person? I think it's vital. I think that this held me up for so long I, avoid, I avoided writing this book by writing other books that I think I knew weren't working um, and didn't work. And I think that I just wasn't um, – I didn't have a clarity or um, an ability to um, tap into any of my other creative resources until this was off my chest and out, out of my body in a way. I had to like exercise myself of it. So – now that I have, it's it's unbelievable. I just all the other books that I started that I didn't finish, I've been thinking about, and I don't feel a conflict. And I think that's what I felt before that I couldn't identify. I felt conflicted. Well, if I'm writing this, I'm not doing this other thing that maybe I should be doing, or that has been stuck inside my body since I was a child, and. Um, so it just it feels um, it feels the same way it did when I was finally diagnosed with having a panic disorder. I feel completely alleviated and um, free to now face my life. 
being the writer I want to be, being the person I want to be. And one of the things we've talked about is um, confronting fears. And the thing you often fear the most probably isn't as bad as you think it's going to be. Right. As a technique. And, and that's useful to you know anybody listening, whatever, the, whatever their issues are. Can you talk a little bit about that technique and how that's helped you? Yeah. I had an actual experience. Um, so I in New York City, I ran um, a music and literary event called Happy Ending, the Happy Ending Music and Reading Series. And it went on for about 13 years, but I don't really add. Um, and As I, we've established earlier, <laughs> math's not your strong suit. <laughs> not my strong suit. I'm not writing a math book next. Um, anyway, I um, when I was about 35, I went on stage and... I realized as I began to introduce the show that I was having a panic attack and the only way that I could actually move forward and get and do the show was to say out loud and admit to the audience, hi, my name is Amanda Stern and I'm having a panic attack. And I think that some people thought I was joking in the beginning. And then I said, like, I, I, the only way I'm going to get through this is if I, talk through it with you and you're sort of now held hostage so I did that and I that was the worst possible thing that could happen to me was to have this have a panic attack in front of other people it felt like the most mortifying shameful thing that could happen because in my mind if that happened I would die and so what happened was I didn't die and I just had a panic attack in front of all these people who were at first confused, and then were on my side, and then wanted to help get me through it. And then once I got through it, they like rewarded me with, you know, applause. And it was just the most incredible, horrifying night. But I learned that your absolute worst fears are not going to kill you unless your absolute worst fear is literally dying. You know, I mean, the actual worst fear is when you're actually dying. Um, you know, I fear that this thing that happens to me a lot, which is having a panic attack, would actually cause my own death. And and I ended up surviving it and not dying from it. And so that taught me a lot. That taught me that, um, you know, facts are not feelings or feelings are not facts, rather. And um, that the stories that we tell ourselves never match the stories that are happening, you know, and you can test that in the world. You know, you can go out in the world and test it and and think like, I am feeling so, I've done this with my niece, actually. Um, She was so nervous to, um, about something, she was so nervous to go to a party and was feeling so self-conscious and told me why. And I was like, okay, I promise you, no one is focused on how thin the straps of your dress are. And she was like, no, that's the first thing they'll see. And I was like, I'm going to prove it to you. I'm going to choose something about myself that I'm really feeling insecure about. And you're going to guess what it is. And she couldn't. And, you know, it's just that simple. It's like we never, we're never right. We're never right about the fears that we have. And what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, as the saying goes. Thank you so much, Amanda Stern. Her book is Little Panic Dispatches from an Anxious Life. Thank you for being with us. Thanks for having me, Doug. And thank you for joining us for KCBS In-Depth. I'm Doug Sovereign, KCBS. 
You've just heard KCBS In-Depth, a news interview program for All News 740 and FM 106.9 KCBS. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did.